This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and with me is my colleague from just down the hall, Corey Webel, who's an assistant professor here in the Department of Learning, Teaching, and Curriculum uh, at MU. So, Corey, thanks for sitting down with me. Thanks. We're going to be talking about Corey's recent article, co-authored with Doug Platt, which is called The Role of Professional Obligations in Working to Change One's Teaching Practices, and that's published in the current volume of Teaching and Teacher Education. So, Corey, with this study, I'm just wondering what the original inspiration was for you to be looking at teachers who are striving to change and kind of negotiating their obligations as they do that. Yeah, so I think this comes from just a variety of different experiences working with teachers in various contexts, but also I think really kind of thinking about my own teaching and recognizing that I don't always teach in the way that I want to. Mm. I have particular goals that I want to achieve, I feel like I know the content pretty well, and then sometimes I'll look back on some lesson that I taught and think, well, it didn't, I didn't really do what I wanted to do there. And so I got really curious about about why that was. And I also thought about that in terms of when I'm going and, and working with teachers or watching teachers teach and wondering if they're doing the same thing. You know, the things that they're doing, are they, are they happy with what they're doing, or are they mm-hmm. thinking, I'd do that differently if I could? So... The goal was really to kind of get underneath just looking at what was happening and try to figure out, you know, why are teachers doing the things they're doing? And, and especially in the case that they're they're doing things they're not all that happy with, why are they still doing those things that they're not happy with? And, and, and again, also thinking about that in terms of my own teaching. Uh, what is it about teaching that leads me to do things that I, I wouldn't choose to do? Mm-hmm. Um, just sort of thinking at, at, at a larger grain size. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting topic because... Teachers themselves or scholars of teaching, they can sometimes be critical of teaching and say, you know, like, okay, here we're documenting something that's less than ideal in the teaching that's happening. And a lot of times there's kind of this implicit assumption that that was the teacher's best performance of it and look how critical we can be of it. But you're kind of bringing this other perspective of maybe the teacher themselves would even critique it or they might even say, I'm not really happy that that's how that went. But there's probably some reason that they did it that way. Right, right. And, and I think sometimes we, too simplistically, we say, well, the teacher either, you know, doesn't have the right knowledge, doesn't understand the mathematics well enough, or doesn't understand the pedagogy well enough, or, or sort of has the wrong beliefs mm-hmm. about what's supposed to happen, when really it might not be either of those cases. Maybe there are these other factors mm-hmm. uh, that are coming into play that are kind of constraining what they can do. And so to frame those other factors, you use this um, idea of practical rationality. So could you tell us a little bit about that framework? Sure. So this is uh, coming from Pat Herbst and Dan Chazen's work. They've done a a lot of work developing this framework. Uh, One of the things I really like about it, I think of it as kind of analogous to when we look at students and we look at maybe they solved a mathematical problem and they, they have some kind of error. I think we've moved to a place where instead of thinking, you know, this student has a lack of knowledge and don't understand something, we think, well, what does this student understand? What's, what are they thinking that's leading them to give this particular answer? And I think that's kind of what practical rationality does with teaching. It looks at a particular episode of teaching and says, you know, rather than thinking, you know, this teacher doesn't understand something, um, and that's why they're doing this, it's the other side. So what do they understand? What, are, what kind of knowledge are they basing this decision on and trying to understand that? 
So, like the students not behaving irrationally when they give an incorrect answer, the teachers not being irrational when they make particular choices. They're doing what they're doing um, according to a kind of rationality um, that fits in the moment in which they're doing it. So, this is really helping me understand or try to dig into why teachers are doing what they're doing. So, there's there's two parts to the practical rationality. There's norms, which is kind of what teachers do automatically, what they would do sort of without feeling like they need to justify it. And then obligations, which are what teachers would use to justify their teaching practice. If someone said, you know, why are you doing this? And these are these are professional obligations, so it's not, you know, I'm doing this problem about swimming pools because I really like to swim. You know, they, they would give some kind of professional justification because these are the obligations we have um, to our students, to the discipline. Um, there's these other uh, sources of, of obligations. Like the institution that they work in. Right, right, right. So and these particularly come into play if you're going to do something that goes against the norm. So if, if you watch a teacher and they do something that's not normative, mm-hmm. they would probably, if you said, well, why did you do that? They would justify it by referring to one of these obligations. Oh, I did this because this is really good for students or because this my school has this goal and I'm trying to, to, to meet that. So mm-hmm. it's these, these sort of obligations that you have as a member of this profession. Mm -hmm. And so this practical rationality is really seen as not an attribute of an individual person, but really an attribute of the profession of teaching. In the sense, they kind of operate, it's too simplistic to say in common, like everyone would have the same obligations, but they, they kind of exist across the teaching profession. And now in the article in Teaching and Teacher Education, you present cases of two teachers, Amy and Becky. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about Amy and Becky Sure, sure. So um, these were teachers that I had worked with previously in a professional development. They were interested in making changes to their teaching through the professional development. We'd we'd been talking about things like mathematical discourse and um, student engagement, and so they were interested in in making changes in that direction. They were both teaching at the same school, um, but somewhat different teaching contexts in terms of what classes they were teaching. Um, different grade levels. I think Becky was more like ninth and 10th grade. Amy was more 11th and 12th. They chose a class that they wanted to focus on for the project and talk about their decisions within that class. Amy chose a, a pre-calculus class. Becky chose a class that they called replacement geometry. It was, was sort of like a, almost like a remedial mm-hmm. class for students who had historically struggled in math, and this was a geometry class. Mm-hmm. And then what was the data that you used to then build these two cases? So we, we looked at three different aspects. Uh, one was the teacher's goals. And so we actually had them do a, a goal mapping activity where they made kind of a concept map of all their goals they had for themselves. Uh, we also used some interviews to also look at their goals. And I'll talk about those a little bit more. We also looked at their teaching, so we videotaped several episodes um, of each of their classes. Uh, we ended up, for the paper, analyzing four for each teacher in detail. So we videotaped those. When we looked at the teaching, we analyzed by breaking down into into what we call discourse moves. So we actually broke it down in pretty, pretty significant detail um, in terms of the chunks of the transcript. And so for each move, each move had a form, so maybe it was a question that they asked, and a purpose, what was the purpose behind the question, and then what was the consequence of the question. And then the last thing we looked at, so we have goals, teaching, the last thing was their obligations. So this was in the interviews. Um, We did five interviews over the course of the year. The later interviews were really kind of post-lesson debriefs, so we'd go watch the class, then we'd talk to both the teachers together and talk about what they noticed about their teaching. And so the obligations we really focused on when they did things like 
justify their teaching, say, I did this because for this and such and such reason, or um, they conveyed a sense of obligation through words like saying, I should have done this, or um, I have to do this, I must do this. So we sort of broke those obligations down using that framework. And uh, there's more detail about that in the paper. <laughs> Certainly is uh, coding guides, and then you even have the appendix to kind of give a lot of detail. Yeah. Um, seems like a thorough job. I'm speaking with Corey Webble from the University of Missouri about his article in Teaching and Teacher Education. Having looked at Amy and Becky and these different data sources, let's talk through what you end up finding. So let's start with Amy and just kind of talk us through what was Amy doing in terms of her teaching, and then how did that relate to the obligations that she talked about? Sure. So just quickly first, Amy's goals. I have a picture in the paper of, of each of the goal mappings that the teachers made, and um, Amy was said things in her goals like she wanted to make sure that the class was not just focused on procedures, that students were making connections across different mathematical topics. She wanted students to be able to try without worrying about being right. Um, and these all kind of got coalesced in, in this idea of, of offering opportunities for students to exercise more agency in their class. When we saw Amy's teaching, we actually saw it looked pretty stereotypical, kind of a lot of um, here's the procedure, here are the steps, showing kids what to do and giving them opportunities to practice. So it was an interesting case to look at because there was a pretty stark contrast between what she said she wanted to do and what was actually happening. So when we started looking at her obligations, one of the common themes we saw Amy coming back to again and again was this idea of efficiency. She really wanted students to be efficient. So she told this story about how she started out the class showing students how to draw a triangle and use the sort of definitions of the trig functions to, to solve some problems. And then later in the semester, she was asking them to use these identities to solve them symbolically, and the students were really resistant to this. And she was frustrated because they were relying on these methods that she thought were inefficient. And she's like, you know, I have to move them forward from just this drawing a triangle. They shouldn't have to draw a triangle every time they want to solve one of these things. They should use these more efficient methods. Mm. Later on, she said, this is a quote I put in the paper, I don't want them to do it that way, referring to a, what she thought was of, of an inefficient method. Um, I don't want them to do it that way because I talked to them about the fact that mathematicians are lazy and we want efficiency. We saw this as a disciplinary obligation, that this is what part of mathematics is, is to be able to do things in an efficient way and under, to come up with and use um, efficient methods. That's, that's part of, for her, what it means to be proficient in mathematics. So mm-hmm. for her, that was sort of an obligation that's guiding her. Mm-hmm. And so she used that when she's justifying, you know, this is why I encourage them to use this symbolic strategy, because I want them to move in this direction to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, I think I've heard that same kind of phrasing from other teachers. You know, I don't think that she's totally unique in that, in sensing that obligation. Yeah. And it's interesting, though, like seeing Amy tie it to this kind of more prescriptive way of teaching of like ushering students through particular methods instead of a more kind of open reform-oriented teaching right Um, and you could see her frustration at the fact that she really wanted them to to sort of opt to choose this more efficient method on their own Mm -hmm. but when they didn't do it she Mm -hmm. felt like she was had this obligation to say you really should use this more efficient method Mm -hmm. so she was kind of kind of stuck where she's trying to meet her obligation but it's at the expense of this other goal Ah. of opening things up yeah so she's kind of got these two things that are fighting against each other and she's got to choose one over the other right 
And then there's Becky as well presented in the article. So I was wondering if you could kind of talk us through some of the main features of Becky's case. Sure. Becky's goals were were similar to Amy's. She said things like she wanted the the teacher and the students, so herself and her students, to to sort of have blended roles. She didn't want to be always asking the questions and them answering the questions. She wanted them to be asking questions too and her to be answering. She wanted sort of this blended role. And again, she said things like... um, wanted them to be able to do things on their own. She talked about uh, not giving them all the information that they need at the beginning of an activity. One activity, she didn't give them grid paper to to do a task, and then she was talking about she wanted them to decide that they wanted this grid paper and decide that they needed a, a better tool to use. And so she was trying to sort of promote agency on their part to take more control over their own learning. So when we look at Becky's teaching, we see that she looks a little bit more uh, open than Amy. Um, so she would ask questions like, what are we going to do to solve this problem, kind of open-ended things. But she also said you know, a lot of yes and no, does this look like 70 degrees, yes or no. So it was a little bit more open. She was particularly concerned with vocabulary, and this was something we talked about a lot. And you could see her in some of her lessons try to extend opportunities for students to, to take on a little more agency in terms of vocabulary by you know, letting them develop an idea before saying what the name was. But then she would kind of shut that down really quick as soon as they kind of started to do something different than what she expected. She'd say, actually, this is the real word. Uh, this is the standard word, the, the official name of mm-hmm. this vertical angles or, or whatever the word happened to be. Mm-hmm. So when we looked at the obligations, again, a lot of vocabulary concerns. Um, she talked about wanting to make sure that students were able to use the standard vocabulary words. So, like I mentioned, vertical angles, adjacent angles. She said, this is a quote again, they have to be able to use big people words, grown-up words. And in the interview, I asked her, you know, would it be problematic if the student said across from instead of saying vertical? And she said a really interesting phrase. She said, I don't think I'm allowed. Mm. And that was really interesting. Who's not allowing you to Mm -hmm. use this? Mm -hmm. And so she went on and elaborated and said, I don't want to let go of those vocabulary words. They have to have words. They can't just say across from. They need to be able to use these words. And very emphatic about this need to and have to, which mm-hmm. is um, something we really picked up on in the coding. Mm-hmm. We consider that to be, again, sort of a disciplinary obligation like Amy's. Like, this is part of being good at mathematics. Part of understanding mathematics is knowing these, these mathematical words. But then she also talked about this idea of being afraid to say something that might confuse students. So this idea of allowing them to sort of generate their own ways of talking about an idea before saying, well, this is the official mathematical term for that, she was concerned that that would confuse them, that if they had two words for the same idea, then they were going to be confused. And Mm -hmm. and she said, this is a quote again, I hesitate to say it differently because I don't think they can make the connection. I think they're just happy if they understand that one way. So she's she's not sure that they're going to be able to handle these multiple definitions at the so same time. So do you see that as an obligation to the students yeah. to not do something that might confuse them? Right. To, okay. Right. And I think that's pretty strong. I mean, I I see that <laughs> most of the times you you work with teachers and you you try to work with them on doing something innovative in their class, and everything goes well until the students get confused, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's when you you know you see them. And I think I do this too in my own teaching. When they start to get confused, that's an uncomfortable place to be. Yeah. So that's where you know this feels really bad when my students are confused. That's not what I think about teaching as is my kids sitting here confused while I'm right. You know, trying to trying to help them learn something. 
So, yeah, so that, those were her main obligations that we saw was this disciplinary obligation about vocabulary and then this um, obligation to students to avoid confusing them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think each of these cases is interesting on its own, and so I think it's nice to have those. I also wanted to ask you, when you look across the two cases and the fact that you included both of them in this article, what do you think are the implications that come out of the cases together? I think it's really interesting that you you see a disciplinary obligation in both, but they're they're pretty different. But I also think that in both cases you see that there are these obligations that are guiding what they're doing. And you could look at their teaching and say, you know, I could say, well, Amy doesn't really believe the things she said she believed. Those aren't really her goals. Mm. But that's not the impression I got from the meetings that we had, that she... You know, didn't really. I think she really wanted students to develop agency and choose their own methods. She just, in the moment, it was important for her that they, you know, develop this this efficiency. The tension that they both experienced was pretty evident, and they were both actually kind of frustrated at the end of the at the end of our time. I remember we reflected and we thought, well, what, what did you think about your goals you set for the end of the year? And they're both saying, you know, I'm really frustrated that I wasn't able to do what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't that tells me that they. It wasn't a problem about their beliefs. And I don't really think there was a problem with their sort of math knowledge either. Hmm. So it just highlighted to me that the role of these obligations and how powerful they are. Mm -hmm. And another thing that we talk about in the paper is these obligations seem to be pretty core to how teachers view their jobs. It's part of their professional identity. So we sort of questioned whether or not it's feasible or even something one should try to do is try to try to help change these obligations. So one of the things we talked about was maybe instead of trying to change the obligation directly, you could help teachers recognize it and think about it a little bit differently. So for example, for Becky to say to her, you know, it's okay that your kids are confused. I don't know how how that well how well that's gonna go over because that's such a strong yeah. um, part of part of what she considered to be, you know, her role as a teacher. But one thing that she did talk about was that she keeps repeating the same explanation over and over again, and her kids are still really confused. Mm-hmm. So that was something we thought we could sort of highlight and say, okay, well, okay, your current practice is this, yeah. and what's happening? Making something singular doesn't necessarily avoid all confusion. Right. And therefore, you know, having multiple ideas does not necessarily guarantee confusion. Right. Well, right. So the idea was that that... I don't think there's any way to avoid the fact that kids are going to be confused. You can try to spell it out for them and tell them exactly what to do, which seems like it's not going to be confusing, but mm-hmm. what happens is they're still confused. Mm-hmm. So what we sort of put forward as a hypothesis is that this could help a teacher, this kind of an approach, saying, okay, well, what's happening with your current practice and how does that sort of fit with your obligations could help a teacher like Becky recognize that, well, actually they're confused no matter what. So are there are there ways to be confused that are more productive than other ways? Mm-hmm. And then we can start thinking about that. So, mm-hmm. like, I'm not able to meet this obligation to not confuse kids at all. Mm-hmm. But maybe I can meet the obligation in a larger sense in a way that I provide them opportunities to learn so that they come out at the end understanding yeah. more. So there's sort of confusion in the moment, yeah. and then there's confusion in the long term. Right. And so if you have to choose between those... Mm-hmm. I don't know. One would one would think that you know confusion in the moment is okay as long as I come out understanding something better in the end. Yeah, 
or my obligation is not to avoid confusion. My obligation is to be a guide for the students through the confusion and come out the other side, kind of like you're saying. Right, exactly. So, So rather than saying directly, you know, it's okay for kids to be confused, giving them experiences, like you said, where, you know, sort of I can modify that. Like, yes, Mm -hmm. I don't want them confused at the end. And maybe in order to get to that place, they have to go through some confusion to get to that place where they they resolve that confusion Mm -hmm. at the end. Yeah, and so using potential contradictions between goals and the obligations as a site to do this clarification or to do this reframing or something like that. Right, so it's it's sort of like um, thinking of the obligation rather than a constraint but thinking of it as an affordance. So here's this obligation that a teacher has. How can I sort of spin that into something that helps them be more reflective about their practice? Mm -hmm. So that's a powerful idea that I want to keep thinking about and what are some opportunities for for thinking about, especially these really powerful obligations that seem to be guiding a lot of decisions. What's a way to to turn those into an affordance for, for change? We've been speaking about Corey's article with Doug Platt, published in Teaching and Teacher Education. It's uh, titled, The Role of Professional Obligations in Working to Change One's Teaching Practices. Corey, I want to ask you one more question before I let you go. So um, back in episode 1302, when you were first on the podcast, I asked you about your alternative career. This time I want to ask you something different. What is your favorite musical? (laughs) So I I think I have to say Wicked. Mm-hmm. Uh, because my, as you know, my wife was on, on tour with Wicked for almost a year while I was in grad school. So I've seen that show more than 20 times. And actually, it's probably one of the only shows that you can see that many times without it getting getting really old. So I do enjoy that one. Um, I do have, I, I like a lot of different musicals, actually. Um, Next to Normal is one of my favorite sort of more modern modern take. It's, it's a... That's a really good one. And then <laughs> I really like the old classics, too. My daughter is two years old right now and really likes The Music Man. Oh, it's yeah. Her, it's her favorite, so she she knows a lot of the songs already. So. Yeah, that's a fun one. Um, my younger brother was uh, actually the lead in Music Man, like in the high school production of it back in my hometown. So I think you and I both were Sky Masters. Yeah, this is a funny thing we realized uh, when Corey came to the University of Missouri. We were talking, we realized we were both in Guys and Dolls in high school. <laughs> And then we realized we were both Sky Masters in, in Guys and Dolls in high school. <laughs> so we'll have to get together and do like a Sky Masterson off or something. That's right. That's right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time here to stop over and talk about this article. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks a lot, Sam. Thank you for listening to this episode of the MathEd Podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, please use the PayPal donation button at mathedpodcast.com.